Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 194 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night, February 10th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, we have a guest. We're not alone. I am happy to say that the winner of the raffle for Casa Marinea, Greg Gisvald, is here to join us as a co-host tonight. Yay! Third Kermit Muppets yell right yeah. there. I, I was the actually gonna, I was gonna do I was gonna do um, um, Greg on um, the board. Thank yeah, seriously, much. Greg. It's a um, and, and, and thank you. I mean, thank you both to you and to everybody who participated in the raffle. I mean, we were we were really happy to be able to to support a good cause and and grateful to have you on and in thank in recognition of your participation. It was it was a delight. Um Supporting shelters like Casa Marianella is a sort of family tradition. My my dad spent, I think, 33 years as a uh, board member volunteer for a similar organization in Portland, Oregon. And so, no kidding, that's yeah. awesome. Yep. Uh, well, so, so so we are we're going to spend a little bit of time actually uh, chatting with Greg about his fascinating work um, and 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 um, why he does you know waste his time listening to podcasts like this one. Um, we also have decided, um, against probably everyone else's better judgment, but entirely in favor of ours that we're going to end the show with a discussion of, um, the, a, a sort of a deep dive into the 1986 Mets, um, <laughs> which I, I, seems to be one of the things we have, we all have in common here. Um, but, Can but Bobby, imagine, we also, many, uh, uh, we were getting about 15,000, you know, downloads a week on the yeah. show. <laughs> what percentage of those people are like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, listen, if we're going to do a deep dive on anything that's like not in the news right now for frivolity, I mean, why shouldn't it be the 19... What's wrong with the 1986 Mets? That's just it. There was nothing wrong with them. And are they well, not perfect antidotes? Maybe if we get to the personal level, there were a few things wrong with them, but baseball-wise, they were pretty great. Other than the cocaine and the brawling and the, you know... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few problems. Um so. But there was um ESPN had this thing. I'm trying to. Remember, I, I'll, I'll have to find it before we get to frivolity, where they ranked all of the World Serieses in uh, reverse order of of excitement. Oh, um, and, and 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 Mets Red Sox actually ended up pretty high on the on the meter. It has to be. I mean, it it was a good series overall. Great cast of characters on both sides, and and you you know to be really high on that list, you got to have a real moment of wild drama that's a little different than any other series and they certainly aka the bottom of the 10th inning of game six of the world series oh that poor son of a gun (laughs) wait 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 wait. no 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 okay i'm sorry but in the in the spirit of han shot first i'm just gonna say um you know everyone you know everyone blames bill buckner it's bob stanley's fault i mean like let's just (laughs) let's let's just be clear on this i just you know there's plenty of Plenty of pain to go around and plenty of champagne that had to be hauled out of the Red Sox. Seriously. Um, and Bruce Hurst had to be unnamed the, the World Series MVP. But before we get to all of that, um, right, we actually do want to talk a little bit about, oh, I don't know, national security law, or at least things that are somewhat adjacent to it, Bobby. We do, we do feel duty-bound to do this. So I think let, let's run through a couple of actually relevant things. We like to think of this as stuff we actually know something about, uh, <laughs> although we often prove the opposite once we dig in to it. We'll, we'll talk about, of course, the impeachment, latest developments there. Uh, Steve, you've got a, is it a CAF filing, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces uh, filing that's been completed? 
Yeah, we're done briefing um, what I think is actually going to become a pretty big case on military jurisdiction. My my pet issue, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, court martial jurisdiction over retirees, but we're actually heading toward what might be an inflection point on that issue. So I thought I'd just give folks an update on where things stand. No, that's worth talking about for sure. And then as long as we're on the subject of military justice, we will head southeast from Austin or... Yeah, southeast. And uh, we will make our way to Guantanamo and, and note what is, <laughs> surprise, surprise, not happening there. We'll check in with the latest non-developments. And, um, you know, we could take note of a few other things, but I think we'll, we'll probably... Do we want... Hey, did, you know, this is we, we did we, this is our usual good plan. Do we want to talk about Yemen at all, or is that is that too... Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about Yemen a little bit. Um, whenever you... Yeah. We need to talk about that. And then let's pivot to the rule of law building discussion yes. with our special guest, Greg Giswold. Um, and the the rule of law work is is a topic area that we've not directly engaged in this show, but not because it's not fit topic for a national security podcast. So I'm glad that the coincidence of, Greg, you winning the, the hosting gig um, actually gives us excuse to dive fairly deep into that world, rule of law building in other societies. Sure. So we'll we'll get to that, and then we'll then we'll turn our attention back to 1986. It was a great year. <laughs> uh, we may or may not compare notes on what we were all doing age wise at the time. <laughs> we were okay. Um, let's start off with the impeachment palooza, which is uh, it's gone through the first wicket. Um, a rehash of the debate over whether it is constitutional to proceed with an impeachment proceeding, even if it began during a term of office, to proceed with it past the president's term of office. We have explained ad nauseum on this show why we think this isn't even a close call, that yes, it is constitutional, that all the standard methods of constitutional interpretation point that direction. Um, A majority of the Senate Featuring what was it? Six, maybe yep. six. Six, six Republicans. Six Republicans. Now, is that any different than uh, than what you expected? It's one different. It's Bill yeah. Cassidy different. Yeah, yeah, um, Louisiana. Yeah. So Cassidy, Cassidy. I mean, Cassidy said that he was um, a, a combination of of really, really persuaded by the House manager's presentation and really unpersuaded by Trump's lawyers. Um, it's yeah, that, astonishing. I did not know that one of the things we'd be talking about this week would be this idea that there might be a category below Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani in terms no. of efficacy. No, no, I got to say, Steve, on that. They, those were coherent. Those were sentences. They might yes. not have been coherent. I mean, yes, the overall arc might have been a little rambling, but um, but but, but no comparison, one. Not, neither of the two lawyers who represented President Trump in the Senate suggested that Chief Justice Roberts should be executed. Like, I feel like that's, mm, you know, it's a little bar, hard, but they, but, the they, but they surmounted it. If um, that's the bar, then you're right. Yeah, okay, I, with, I withdraw my, my harsh characterization but, and we'll just refer to these just aren't good arguments. Can we talk about Ted Cruz? Oh boy, sure. Why not? <laughs> so, so Ted Cruz, um, so Ted Cruz was one of the forty-four Republican senators who voted nay. Um, the the motion was, can the Senate try former President Donald J. Trump? Um, and the eyes were fifty-six, and the nays were forty-four. And Cruz voted no. And then he published an op-ed on Fox News. And Bobby, the op-ed says, and I really don't think this is an unfair summary of the op-ed, um, that the Senate actually does have the power to try former officials, 
but it's discretionary, not mandatory jurisdiction. And so the Senate ought not to try former officials. Um, I, I am basically quoting from his op-ed. Okay, so his position is uh, so as Greg correctly point, yes, Greg, you well, welcome to the show. Greg has <laughs> has has spotted the plot hole, which is that's not how he voted. <laughs> Unbelievable! Oops, whoops! Right. So Cruz tries to defend the vote by saying that's why I voted. That's why I quote voted to dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction. That wasn't the motion, right? The motion was not should the case be dismissed. The question that was called in the Senate was can we try Trump? And, and Cruz voted nay. So I just want to say, I mean, you yeah, know, I'm re- listen. I'm reading it now that you've drawn my attention to it. Um, did, I, did, did I fairly, did I oh, fairly yeah, yeah, yeah. present he, it? He, he, he comes, look, so clearly what's going on here is he wants the written record to show that he does in fact recognize the arguments that favor jurisdiction, yet his vote was dead opposite. So he's a constitutional scholar and a... Um, what fly by night juror or a uh, yeah or a person who plans on continuing to run for office and views yeah, it as necessary to I, it just i mean just like you know to have some principles man like if you actually so I, I actually think it's an interesting question whether it's proper to think about the senate's jurisdiction as discretionary in this context i mean i, I actually understand the logic of his argument that it actually might be but don't like, I mean, then what he should have done is he should have voted yay on the motion and then filed his own motion to dismiss, not for lack of jurisdiction, but in the interest of justice, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, we should, I hereby move that we dismiss this case because we ought not to hear it. Like, Ted Cruz is a smart constitutional lawyer. Ted Cruz is the former Solicitor General of Texas. He understands the distinction between can and should. And he's, you know, he's just trying to have it both ways. No, that's right. It, I'm, I'm reading through his argument. Uh, He's, he's taking the position, I've heard this from a few sources, claiming that the way to think about this is it's literally just, quote, an exercise of partisan retribution. And I just don't see how anyone with a straight face can believe that. Especially after watching what the videos today. says about the merits of whether the president's language, the then presence, the ex, apparently there's, apparently we have to like debate, you know, is it former or ex, the ex-president's language at that time, whether it crossed the line into knowing incitement of violence or or was somehow short of that line, that's all something I think is worthy of discussing and debating. But to suggest that the whole thing is in uh, a bad faith exercise, just ginning something up as if the as if the big lie never happened, as if the violent assault on the Capitol never happened, as if the deaths that occurred there never happened. That's unbecoming. And that's not a good argument to make. Well, especially when the, the, for many of these folks, the previous sentence out of their mouth was how good a job and how persuasive the arguments being proffered by the impeachment managers are. And so if the evidence is that impressive and the arguments are being made in a coherent and straightforward fashion, then how can the next sentence be, but this is purely partisan and, um, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. Absolutely, Greg. That's, I mean, that's a great point. It's just the no, I mean, because I, I think of the hypocrisy as sort of the hypocrisy of saying that this isn't important, right? Which is bought to Bobby's point. But Greg's exactly right. I mean, the hypocrisy of, of saying in one breath, like Jamie Raskin and walking and, 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 you know, Congressman Walking Castro, Castro and, yeah. right, right, that like all these folks are, are sort of 
doing an excellent job. Um, delegate Plunkett from the VI, who I thought was fantastic, um, right? And then saying, oh, but this is all, you know, partisan witch hunt. Well, no, you can't have it both ways. I was, guys, I was shocked, especially by some of the videos that were introduced today um, that had not video? been made public before. Yeah. Um, there's one video where, um, oh gosh, I'm not gonna remember his name. The officer who like saves the Senate. Goodman. Goodman. Um, yes. Also Goodman. Thanks. Um, right. Um, you see him running past Mitt Romney and then yelling at Romney to turn around and run in the opposite direction. And Romney turns around and runs in the opposite direction, yeah. like, you know, 20 seconds ahead of a crowd of, you know, the crowd who eventually chases Goodman up the stairs, um, because Goodman leads him that way. And it's just like, this was so close to being a huge, like a much, 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 much worse thing than it already was. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could have been a mass casualty event, not yes. to use the dynamics. No, of that, world, but, it, you know, not, and not just, and, and, and I gotta say, not just a mass casualty event, but a decapitation of the legislative branch, right? Right at the moment that is performing one of its most important constitutional functions. Um, okay. And, and there's also, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw the video of the sort of interlacing of Trump's, remarks and his tweeting with what was going on in real time during the riots. They've, they've got one point where Trump tweets about Pence and then a rioter reads through a bullhorn Trump's tweet like a minute after he sent it and it further inflames people. And it's just like, you know, the case is being made. If there are senators like Josh Hawley, who, you know, by one media report I saw, spent the whole day sitting up in the gallery working on other stuff. If there are senators who just don't want to look like that's on them. But the notion that like you can be looking at this evidence and saying there, this is a partisan witch hunt and there's no there there is just, I mean, you know, I, I've used this expression before. It's not a very polite one. But, you know, if you're going to piss on us, don't tell us it's raining. raining. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it in many ways frustrates me, as I've said before in this show, that the scope of what's focused on here is the president's responsibility for inciting the violence because there's 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 space there for people to talk about and reasonably disagree about were his words yet you can see what the effect was but the question of what was his intent looms very large and so you can have some debate about that when it to me it's all a little bit of a red herring relative to the magnitude of the assault on our legal order and our 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 structure of government to advance so relentlessly and so gigantically the big lie, which is the larger problem here. And I, I totally understand the, the tactical considerations that led to not framing it solely in those terms. But once you once you make it all about, well, what, what exactly did he intend? Was this just incredibly reckless without being purposeful? You, there's space for the purposeful, reckless divide discussion to take place, but not about the big lie. And that's what really matters. And that's super purposeful and clearly and indisputably so. I wish that's what we were talking about even more. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Uh, Impeachment Palooza, do you foresee at this point, Stephen Gregg, are we moving now from the, the pseudo legal debates for they are pseudo debates for the most part. Do we move on from the pseudo legal debates now to just the, the rhetorical contest and the question of whether somehow, some way, something breaks through in a way that nudges a bunch of uh, Republicans who aren't going to vote in favor of this to vote in favor of it? Or is that just such a foregone conclusion? That ain't happening. The polling isn't there. That's what's dispositive. The leadership's not going to, you know, McConnell's not going to marshal people to switch. Therefore, we're just running out the clock at this point. I think McConnell has always been the key. And, and I think, you know, it, it, 
unless he decides between now and the end of next week that he's going to whip votes for conviction. Um, you know, yeah, there'll be, it'll be a lot closer than, than last year. I think it'll be maybe 59, 60 votes to convict. You know, maybe there are nine or 10 Republican senators who actually do end up voting to convict. Um, it's not going to be 67. And, you know, I think McConnell could change that in a heartbeat if he wanted to, but I just, I just, I don't see any inclination or any, any sign that he's going to. So to me, that's, vi- that's in a very interesting question, this predictive descriptive question of whether there are beyond, beyond what I will describe as the, the honorable ones, the very honorable people who have, despite all this unbelievable pressure not to do it, um, Sass, Romney and others who are in Toomey and others who are, seem like they're willing to do the right thing and vet their conscience. And I don't doubt that for a second, at least that's to some of them. Um, is there a further group that is not quite so bold, but that with the permission of the leadership would come over? Or is the authoritarian populist cohort that is, at least for the moment, seemingly seized control of the GOP, is it present enough and strong enough in numbers that even if McConnell would like to swing a total of 17 votes over, not one extra to to spare everyone, but is there even a persuadable, whippable bunch in the more responsible camp? And honestly, I don't know. I hope the answer is yes. I don't know. I don't think we're going to see that. But I'd, I'd like to at least think that if McConnell did decide to pull that trigger, and he's he said some things suggesting that this isn't beyond the realm of possibility, um, but I don't know if he actually has the leverage. I don't either. I, I'm, I think you're both right in not underestimating sort of the craven political calculations that are likely to go into this. The thing that worries me most is the future of the party you know, and, and the importance of a loyal and, and, um, well, integrity prone opposition to the functioning of American democracy. And, uh, if we've got a, a group that is willing to set aside reality, no matter how starkly presented, then, um, you know, what becomes of the notion of common ground? Yep. No, we've, we've clearly lost sight of that. Our, our politics has been swallowed whole by infotainment yeah. and the passions that we historically have reserved, the sort of this, these atavistic passions we've historically reserved for our sports fandom, which mm. we'll, we will put on full display in about you know, <laughs> yeah. here, um, which, which we indulge precisely because of the insignificance of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that is and, and precisely in order to siphon off those energies and discharge them safely into the realm of stuff that really doesn't matter ultimately, such as whether your team or the other city's teams prevailing. Um, we have filled that 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 is that feeling has spilled full throated into our politics in a way that is so darn poisonous. Uh, by the way, Greg, I think you gave us a possible show title there. Somehow, some way, we should be able to work with the phrase "integrity-prone p- opposition." There's integrity-prone is a uh, <laughs> is a great uh, coinage there. Integrity leaning, integrity um, adjacent, integrity curious. Yeah. Hey guys, right now, I'll settle for integrity curious. Yeah, there we go. I like it. Um, <laughs> this, this podcast is integrity curious. curious. Something you just said is um, is also quite resonant in the sense that you. You know, the comparison of 
sports as a as a kind of emotional safety valve in a uh, in the heated environment of a of democratic politics, which are always meant to be contradictory and and you know having multiple opinions crashing together, um, and and the benefit of a safety valve and the role the Senate is supposed to play in our politics as that mm-hmm. cooling saucer. Yes. And, you know, if the safety valve is this broken, then all we've got is the overheating boiler. That's right. If the Senate is playing the role. That analogy up. <laughs> no, the, exactly. The, the cooling saucer was the intent of the Senate. That's why the terms are six years. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to worry so much. Or at least the, world, the, world's, the world's greatest deliberative body. <laughs> that's, that's always been quite a claim. Yeah, not so that's much. Been, that's always been quite an indictment of the world's deliberative bodies. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of indictments, uh, shall we pivot over to the uh, the possibility of court martials of former service members, Steve? And what is happening with your litigation trying to put limits on when that's a possibility? Um, this seems so so trite in comparison to the the gravity of the prior topic. Um, sorry. No, um, I'll, draw a, I'll draw a connection there because we we had a moment a, a year or two ago when we were talking about the uh, the prospect that a sufficiently uh, authoritarian executive branch, if it had sufficient control in the military or sufficient adherence to the military, that one thing it could do is to silence former service members, including maybe the most uh, illustrious of them, by threatening them with court-martial prosecution, recall to face prosecution, in the event that they were to criticize the commander-in-chief. So it matters in in the larger suddenly so timely project of defending basic rule of law. Fair enough. And thinking about the issue of accountability, we just got done with a topic where accountability seems to have fled the building. And now Steve is going to talk about the process, heavy (laughs) aspect of figuring out what it, where it lies. Trying to limit accountability in other respects. Um, Yes. So, (laughs) so um, um, as I think folks know, so I've been working on this issue for a couple of years. I mean, I'm hardly alone. There, there's no, there, uh, a a veritable army, if you will, of military lawyers who've been working on this issue. Um, Although they're actually mostly Navy. Um, Hence, hence, (laughs) a boatload of them. A a boatload of people working on this issue. Yes, a, a boatload. It's interesting that our, that we use army as a synonym for like large mass of people, but not navy. You would never say like I, I have a. There's a navy full of people working on this issue. We don't we don't quite say shipload, but we get close. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, so um, <laughs> it took me a second, Bobby. I'm a little tired. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that's like that. That you you cursed once on this podcast, and I think that's like the closest you've come, short of that one other time. I like to imply um, a curse without actually doing it. There you go. What well, by the so, way, um, trivia question because I don't actually know the answer oh. myself. What was it that got me to actually cuss one time? It had to have been Donald J. Trump. It was. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was it was something Trump related. I remember it was it was it was it was a late episode thing where I was like, oh my gosh, I, there's nothing else I can say. That's that's it. That's the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> So, so at the risk of, of getting us onto onto more more insignificant topics, um, so you know the the question of whether and when it's constitutional to court martial retirees, I actually think does have some added salience in light of what happened on January sixth, given the number of, of veterans um, who appear to have been involved in the insurrection. Um, you know, as as I think you guys know, I've been trying for you know a while to get the Supreme Court to take this question up. Um, we had filed, you know, we had tried to take a direct appeal from a case in the Navy called Larrabee. Um, Navy Marine Corps called Larrabee. Um, Supreme Court had denied cert. We then filed collaterally in civilian court. 
won in the district court in November that's now up on appeal in the D.C. Circuit. So the D.C. Circuit set to decide that question later this year. Um, meanwhile, in the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, or CAF, um, right, CAF has discretionary jurisdiction. CAF had, on multiple recent occasions, refused to take up this question, including in Larrabee. Um, and in the case that we're currently talking about, Bagani, CAF had initially not taken up this issue, taken up a separate challenge about equal protection and whether the distinction between active duty retirees and reservist retirees um, is, is arbitrary in violation of equal protection. Anyway, after Larrabee, we had asked CAF to add, after the district court decision on Larrabee, we asked CAF to reconsider its refusal to take up the big question, right? Whether it's constitutional to court-martial retirees for any offenses, any time. Um, and CAF agreed to take that up for the first time since 1987. Um, and so just this Monday, we finished briefing the, the sort of the supplemental grant of this question. Um, and so CAF is going to hear argument on March 9th, and this will be the first federal appellate court to seriously consider this question since the last time CAF did it in 1987. So, you know, pretty big deal. Um, interesting inflection point. And also, just from my personal perspective, fascinating and weird to finally be actually arguing this at the appellate level after having spent much of the last three years briefing it. So, you know, a fairly significant case as CAF cases go. That's that's going to be a big one. Um, are you going to do... Uh... Are you going to do anything in the way of a, a moot at yep. UT and the usual stuff? Yeah, I mean, we're do, I mean, the moots are Zoom because I think you know we're still we're still in Zoom land. Although the the arguments in person, so this will actually be my the first time I'm doing anything other than teaching a class in a professional setting in person since last March is going to be March 9th in DC. Oh wow, wow! Well, you won't have to worry about your cat filter obscuring your um i will not have to worry about my cat filter this is true um that is i will i will somehow avoid the cat filter um the best part of of the i'm not a cat video in the top left quadrant uh, of this video that we've now all watched the recording of there's like a big admonition do not record this yes No, 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 but but actually, just to be clear, so so the reporter Lawrence Hurley, um, who who is who is a great guy who I know pretty well, I think was the first reporter to to tweet the video, which now has like twenty five million something oh, yeah. or other. Um, and Lawrence got permission from the trial judge. Oh, that's oh, great! Nice. That's great. Now, do we know anything about whether that situation, which kind of tantalizingly stops after the de- the denial of cathood, which by the way. That's exactly what the cat would claim, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, obviously, I'm, obviously, I'm not a cat. Oh, okay. It's like Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. How do you know when you found the enemy? Or how do you know who the enemy is? Well, um, I ask him, are you Viet Cong? And if he says, yes, I shoot him. Right? Like, that's, <laughs> like are you a cat? No. no. <laughs> so do we know, did, uh, did this poor guy <laughs> manage to get the filter off? And also, wait. And, and do we buy the do we buy the claim? Because I mean, I've monkeyed around with my Zoom filters. I don't have anything that cool. Is no. this a, something there's, that there's got to be a twelve year old in the house? I yeah, agree. I guess that's it. The teen. My it is true that my teenagers can do things with Zoom that I'm like for the life of me cannot figure out where that functionality yeah. is. My All teenagers right, well, have like a mental connection with the computer across many many different platforms. Yeah, there's a there's a world of uh, difference between how we engage with technology and them. God bless them. Um, so we're talking about courts. Let's in military courts. Let's look at a different kind of military court: the Court of Military Commissions in Guantanamo. Um, we had noted previously the uh, the revival of the charging process against Tom Bali 
and and his uh, accused accomplices. These are the members of uh, Jamaa Islamiyah, this Indonesia-based affiliate of Al-Qaeda associated with the Bali bombing, among other atrocities. Uh, there are two others, uh, Mohammed Nazir bin Lep and Mohammed Farik bin Amin uh, from Malaysia. So the charging process has revived against them. And, and we noted that this this all stirred up. Steve, was it the day before the inauguration when all this stuff went down? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a, that was about when the stuff started breaking. Yeah, right. So, so it, we talked about how this is interesting because it kind of puts the Biden administration in an awkward spot. It was not clear the Biden administration was planning on there being a, a, a newly active military commission process. We're waiting to see when and if the administration decides to spend a dime's worth of political capital on this project. Prediction, not a dime's worth. In the meantime, uh, in the spirit of keeping the status quo in place, uh, Judge Pritchard, the the latest uh, service member to have the honor of being a military commission judge, has decided that in light of COVID and all the hassles of quarantining both before you leave and then when you get there. Um, Steve, is it an indefinite postponement of even arraignment? Yep. So they can't even get the arraignment off the ground in this deal. Nope. Um, Can this not be done by video? Does it have to, is it clear this has to be done in person? Um, So it's theoretically possible that the defendants could waive their right to appear in person. Um, the problem is, is that first of all, it's not. I, I you have to actually adopt a particular interpretation of the rules of military commissions to do that. Second, there's also the issue of the lawyers, um, which is that it's one thing to have the defendants appearing by video; it's another thing to have the lawyers not able to communicate with their client during the arraignment, um, right? And how would you do that if they weren't in the room, at least with him, if not with the judge? So, I mean, I think what this just drives home is what has been clear in the other cases, Bobby, which is that you know the sort of general difficulty of doing anything at Guantanamo coupled with the specific difficulty of COVID has ground everything to a halt. Um, and, you know, this, this is why, I mean, this is, this is one of the many reasons why every time we've, we've had an over under on when things are going to happen in the military commissions, bet the over. Um, every time. Never, you know, it's like, uh, you, you just can't go wrong with that particular bet, kind of no matter what the uh, initial proposition Unlike is. Unlike my Super Bowl bet, which did not go the way I expected it to. <laughs> well, let's get to We got to cover the Super Bowl for volatility as well. While we're on the topic of Guantanamo, that, of course, overlaps. Though though I have to, you know, it's, it's required in my contract to say military commission prosecutions is a different topic from the use of military detention. Speaking of military detention... Whatever happened to the high-value Islamic State detainees the United States took into custody in the fall of 2019 when the Trump administration abandoned our Kurdish allies very precipitously and the Kurds lost control or had to withdraw from some of their facilities? And none of these were U.S. citizens. No litigation sprung up from it. And it's been crickets ever since the the official there was public official acknowledgement that we took some of those people into our military custody the last whisper of this i find in the public record is that we were at least indirectly acknowledging we were taking them into a safer area in iraq almost certainly around erbil where we and our kurdish allies in the north of iraq have a have a modus vivendi uh, are there are there military detainees uh, you know, equivalent to the Guantanamo detainees in some respects, who've been in our custody for a year and a quarter at this point, and no one cares or pays attention. 
Uh, Maybe. Or, or do you think we quietly, quietly kind of pass that buck to the to the Iraqi Kurds, and they're not formally and, and yes, I am doing air quotes around that. We're not formally in our custody, but they're in some place where we can keep an eye on things and make sure that they're still behind bars. That's my impression. It's that this was like uh, Barnum and Bailey moving the circus from one town to the next. <laughs> the we very quietly the Kurdish guarded prisons and prisoners were moved from. Uh, where they were to uh, Kurdish Iraq. All right. I like that, that comparison. And now I've got all the songs from greatest showman running through my head. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gents, this is the although, although, although I hate to pursue, but apparently like PT Barnum was actually not nearly as, as uh, um, benevolent and beneficent a person as, as Hugh Jackman port, 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 portrays <laughs> yeah. him to be. PT yeah, Barnum, not a good guy. Yes, that that you're you're quoting my son right there. He was explaining this to a crowd full of uh, or a car full of kids in the school uh, transit van that we drive periodically um, about the about how Hugh Jackman portrayed a great guy, but P.T. Barnum himself less of a human. Well, it, yes. it, it, of course, right? Because I mean, uh, Troy Bolton would certainly never have joined forces with a. Uh, Lesser human being uh, than, but than, but than but Bobby. Jackson. I mean, so so the, of course the great the greatest show the greatest showman soundtrack is amazing. But have you listened to the greatest showman reimagined? I have not. Tell me. Uh, so this is this is the that. songs from the greatest showman, but performed by like actual musicians. Um, so the opening. Yeah, <laughs> not fired. Broadway performers around the globe are now cringing. <laughs> No, no, no. Bro, listen, bro. I, I okay. Actual musicians was not the right the right word. So, okay. so one of my best friends is actually a Broadway actor. Recording who has, artists. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Pop stars. I the overlap is between Broadway aficionados and NSL podcast listeners. Um, I, I think there's first of all, I think there's a decent overlap. Second of all, one of my really dear friends is actually a Broadway actor, and so I would get in big, big trouble for, for right. if you ever heard. Early on, um, we got some flack about all the sports ball, as as a listener memorably put it. I wish I could remember who said that. If it was you, let us know because you deserve credit for that great line. And and so I think we went into a little phase of because uh, you know you're not you're not like a good show, Steve. Um, so we we've we've done a fair number of Broadway ish things. I'm not sure if that's the fair way to describe it, but we'll go into show tunes from time to time. Um, which, if any of the uh, reimagined uh, tracks is the one to pay attention to. Oh, they're all amazing. So Panic at the Disco does the opening credit, does the opening song. Um, Pink does A Million Dreams. Pink's daughter does the A Million Dreams reprise. Um, do they do Kelly, the whole, like, the kid voice? And Yes, the- yes. Okay. Um, Kelly Kelly Clarkson does Never Never Enough. Um, Kesha, Missy Elliott, and Keela Settle do This Is Me. Um, oh, Sarah wow. Bareilles sings Tightrope. Oh, um, I bet Zach, that's good. I bet the, good. Yeah. the Zach Brown band does From Now On. Um, and then and then there's a bonus track. There are bonus tracks of pe- the Pentaton- uh, Pentatonics doing The Greatest Show. I'm Craig, David, <laughs> Craig David doing Come Alive and Kesha doing This Is Me. That's pretty great. Okay. okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and and you know it's so funny when we when we digress like this. I always think about how Lawfare Podcast runs our uh, sort of the Bodlerized version where they've removed all the frivolity and by by sandwiching it right in the middle we make it so hard on them it's great they'll never cut this out so Seriously. friends if you're <laughs> listening to this and you've never perceived how much nonsense we talk about 
because because Jacob and others clip off the front and the ending. There's there's more of this where this guy fooled you. <laughs> we, 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 have, we, we have we have fat Bobby, we have found we have found the secret way in. That's yeah. great. And it's oh, so podcast uncut. Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So that actually I think brings us around, Greg, to the rule of law and and the whole universe of Critical, they're, they're not just national security functions, but they are relevant and indeed, I think, uh, very pivotal for our national security. The, the capacity building enterprises that the, the, the vast NGO and nonprofit sector, but also key parts of the U.S. government, so many talented, passionate people uh, laboring in these particular vineyards, very often with very little public awareness or commentary on what's going on. So I'd love to get into this topic by asking you to share how you got into this topic as a career matter for you. Okay. I was, uh, so I, I graduated from the University of Minnesota Law School, and I was practicing in Minnesota with the Attorney General's office and uh, volunteering with a human rights nonprofit. And I got a call uh, from a friend of a friend. Um, well, I should back up. I spent part of that time uh, in 1996 in Bosnia, just after the war had ended there, um, working for a few months for the Office of the High Representative, uh, which was then an experiment in um, sort of modern day trust territory administration. Um, The UN did a lot of that uh, back after World War II. And uh, here we had sort of a first big test of what to do when a country, Yugoslavia, fell apart. Um, And so I was in there working for the Office of the High Representative. I came back to the practice of law, returned to the AG's office, and um, got a call from a friend saying, hey, I see you did this. I have this friend who wants to talk. They're opening an office in Kosovo. And at that point, uh, Wesley Clark was you know, on the border with his Blackhawks and uh, the Russians were on the other side and Milosevic was banging pots and pans and, you know, the whole place was a tinderbox. And I um, was weighing the continued practice of law versus um, what I saw as kind of human rights law in action. Um, and it's worth noting that the the idea of promoting the rule of law overseas isn't, uh, it's a longstanding, you know, uh, ramped up after World War II and, you know, looking back to Lend-Lease and a whole variety of other foreign aid ideas. But as a profession, it's only about two decades old. It was basically born in the wake of, um, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so I stumbled sideways, like a lot of lawyers and non-lawyers of my current generation of rule of law promoters, Uh, One day I was practicing law, and then within a couple of weeks, I had strapped five grand in cash to my uh, in a money belt, gotten on a plane, gotten picked up at a at a airport in Croatia, gotten on another plane, and finally made my way to Pristina and uh, set up office for the American Bar Association, which was the primary uh, nonprofit um, vehicle through which most. U.S. government-funded rule of law promotion overseas was taking place. And um, I will not be gainsaying any of my dedicated compatriots when I say we didn't really have a clue as to what we were doing. (laughs) 
Um, isn't that, isn't, that just, the ta- isn't, isn't that the tagline of our podcast? Yes, it could well be. I'm pretty sure we have a t-shirt that says something very close to yeah, that. I was going to say. Um, the, the history of rule of law promotion overseas, I think, is, is a history of overestimating uh, the idea of exceptionalism and the inherent magnetic pull of democratization and, um, and underestimating the reality of politics and an existing system to persevere and the, um, the number of factors that go into uh, human beings wanting to change the way they do things. So uh, when I first went overseas, we were doing things like building bar associations and transplanting continuing legal education programs and creating bar exams where there had been none. And now we take a much less sort of institutionally focused view on rule of law promotion. We have a much more sort of locally driven uh, sense of and, and mechanisms for helping locals drive the process because um, one of the big mistakes um, that had to be made, I think, in retrospect, but that was made was thinking that um, rule of law promotion, like many other things, could simply be replication of institutions we were already familiar with. And so if we went and created a bar association and made the process of law school look a little bit more like Western law school and uh, created defense bars where there were none that somehow the rule of law would, would turn over like a motor and become a, a self-perpetuating machine. And what we have since realized is that there are a whole host of, of political, uh, bureaucratic and human behavior, social norms issues that are in the way of that, um, that assumption. And so today I spend a lot of time, 20 years later, I spend a lot of my time thinking, you know, basically playing armchair sociologist, archaeologist, political scientist, trying to bring the evidence of a whole host of other um, practices into thinking about what the rule of law is for in a in a developing country. Um, not what it looks like in ours, not what our institutions do that we'd like theirs to do, but rather what does the rule of law mean in rural Kenya? And that turns out to be an exercise in what are the problems that need to be solved and how can they be solved? Um, To get back to your point about the Senate and about sports, uh, sports ball, um, the rule of law is in many ways a societal safety valve. It is a way for us to avoid self-help and which can lead to, um, to civil war uh, and solve problems, whether they are commercial or civic or land ownership or what have you. And um, it's also a way to codify social norms and kind of bind a society together. And what binds our society together is not going to be what binds Malawians or Indonesians together, uh, because their society is going to be in their rule of law is going to be informed by their social norms, their history. Uh, their politics, and and the incentives that exist under the surface, the sort of iceberg of other stuff that drives us day in and day out. And so there, you know, you, you made a point about um, the national security architecture of international development um, and 
kind of the host of non-visible but mission-driven folk out there trying to um, add value to U.S. foreign policy um, in their in their way, and it and it occurs to me there's a little bit of a of a baseball metaphor, um, maybe in honor of Steve, uh, is that when we deploy the military overseas, we are swinging for the fences. It's we're we're like every batter that gets up is aiming for a grand slam. It is a big, splashy, um, huge effort um, with a logistical train and a lot of different people and a lot of different moving parts. It is U.S. power on full, very public display. When we deploy the State Department to, um, you know, create an Iran-Contra, sorry, an Iran um, nuclear treaty or or agreement or something like that to settle a war, um, it's a similar display. It's like, you know, every batter aiming for a triple. Um, what international development is, is small ball. It's getting batters on first over and over and over with little things like better health systems, uh, improved economic uh, systems, uh, commercial banking. When I got to Kosovo, there were no banks. I drove five or six hours, usually behind a tank with or a armored personnel carrier with a lot of uh, diesel exhaust spewing out of it uh, down to Macedonia, withdraw a bunch of money in Deutschmark, drive back up, stick it in the safe in my office and pay salaries. And so when commercial banking came to Kosovo, it was a sea change. Um, and so we, our, our effort in development is small ball. It's, and it's a lot of overlapping small ball. Um, the rule of law is, is vital. It's important. It's a huge American value. But how we promote it overseas, we have learned, is not a, um, an exercise in replicating what we know or what we learned as we went along. Um, we will get nowhere by landing in um, Libya in a few months and saying, where's my Edward Levy? Hmm. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so uh, as a result, we do a lot of stuff uh, to essentially – Work with instant, you know. So we we look at rule of law as kind of a system of norms and laws and expectations and practices of courts, and then also a, a series of institutions that work together to provide a series of services to the public: the investigation of crime, the arrest of of criminals, the uh, determination of guilt, and the incarceration thereof. That's an easy example that criminal justice chain. And so, you know, rule of law is, is a system of norms. It's a series of, of services. It's also a collection of societal impacts, the safety valve idea and the, um, the knitting together of, of common groups in advocacy. And, and it's a feedback loop. You know, we see the rule of law in action and we are comforted to know that we are in a society that abides by the rule of law. There was a, Great study in Chicago years ago by a, a I think he's at Yale now, a political scientist. Um, that one of the features out of it was um, people who were involved in the criminal justice system uh, who were confronted with the administrative competence of of criminal justice actors, cops, um, bail bondsmen, uh, judges, uh, corrections officers. And who were aware of sort of the procedural justice aspects of the process. They knew what to expect. 
They could see it. They could see it operating in a transparent fashion. Even when that, that process yielded negative outcomes for them, they still had faith in the process. So there was this feedback loop of the action of rule of law in society that creates legitimacy. And so when we are looking at this concept, this idea in practice, one of the things we're looking for is this, um, to jumpstart this idea of a practice and competence and transparency equals certainty equals publicity equals legitimacy. And so we're thinking about a lot more than what judges do or what lawyers do or how they're trained. We have to think on on these three dimensions all at the same time, systems, services, societal impacts. And um, and that makes it hard and it makes it really unlikely that anything I've, I will done, I will do or have done will yield the benefit I'm seeking in my lifetime. Hmm. Sucking all the oxygen out of the room there. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just, there's just, there's so much there to respond to. And it's just, it's such important and, and unnoticed and sort of thankless work. I mean, I don't even know where to start. It, it is. It is uh, laboring in the vineyards, to borrow something I said earlier. I can imagine, look, we know that there are a lot of students, current law students and, and eventual law students who will listen to this show. And I'd like to think that more than a few of them are pretty inspired by the importance of the work you've described. What's your advice to them regarding what they ought to do during law school and, and how to pursue a career that that labors in the vineyard? Sure. Um, so don't take... Don't take my path and stumble sideways. Um, there's a scholar at um, Johns Hopkins who's writing a book now that I can't wait to read called, uh, I think his name is Dan Honig, called Mission Driven Bureaucrats. And one of the, one of the messages of, um, of this work is that service in government is valuable. Um, my colleagues at USAID and at the um, U.S. Uh, Global Media Agency, the name, I'm, the acronym I'm bungling right now, um, are valued partners for the military, for the State Department, because we fulfill a role um, and have expertise that they don't. It's a, you know, defense development diplomacy. It's a, it's a whole process. So if you if you are graduating from law school or political science school or sociology school and want to do this stuff, if you've got a PhD in math, you know, uh, sign up to be a foreign service officer. Um, spend a few years. It'll be the most rewarding time of your life. And you've got real value to add to a field that is still developing what it means to be a professional. International development is complex and challenging. But, you know, relatively speaking, as a profession in its infancy, and it could use um, bright eyed, eager, uh, talented, thoughtful, engaged people to add value to it. I am not going to learn enough in the course of the rest of my career about statistics to really understand what a court end user survey in Indonesia can tell me about whether or not the service I'm trying to fix is getting to the point where I need it to get. But a, um, you know, a, someone with a law degree and a, and a master's in statistics or, you know, studies economics and undergrad is going to be just the junior partner I need. Do you think it's a necessary condition for the 
that this work to exist as a body out there in the world, that the United States be able to preserve some degree of its moral capital, its soft power, the the post-World War II standing as the shining city on the hill, as Reagan called it. And if so, how bad are we hurt right now? Yes and no. It's funny you mentioned Reagan because I have, um, as a kid of the 70s and 80s, I have very mixed feelings about him. I think he was right about the shining city on the hill. I think he was he did lasting damage with his nine words um, about the um, nine worst words in the English language being I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> I and, was afraid you were going to go on a George Carlin riff there for a second. That's seven words. That's not nine words. I thought he might be adding a few. There we go. Um, yeah, I, I could bring in a few more. Um, <laughs> Indeed. I think um, – I think there is power. There's more power today in humility than there is in in um, exceptionalism, and I think that we have just conducted a masterclass in how to avoid states of emergency and uh, what to do when your democracy stumbles. We've also revealed that the um, the assumption that the rule of law, you know, even with 250 years of foundation, is somehow secure. Um, is a mistaken one. And that it, you know, I can't remember who the founder was that made the comment about eternal vigilance, but it it takes consistent, continual reinvestment. There's a Japanese word, uh, kaizen, which I think means continuous improvement or something along those lines. And, um, and that's one of the ideas we preach in bureaucratic reform, which is a necessary subcomponent of rule of law reform, because rule of law is held up in part by by key institutions. But it's also the conceptual basis for what makes the rule of law the rule of law. You know, we we have a stronger rule of law system, a more resilient system, just looking at the DOJ, from the efforts of Edward Levy and the people who came after him than we did before. And and so, you know, there are a couple of messages in there. One is the power of individuals to affect the system. The other is the commitment that individuals show to the values of the system. You know, Supra are um, concerned about the actions of certain senators. Um, and then there is the, um, the relative sort of gossamer nature of the structures themselves. It's easy to tear them down. And so it's not so much our moral authority as it is our... Um, continual reinvestment in this idea. We, we have not given up. We, you know, we, we are soldiering on despite having taken quite a bit of self-inflicted, self-inflicted wounds and uh, friendly fire. Wow. Steve, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting here thinking how lucky we were that Greg won this contest. This is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we could just have you on as a guest. I feel like we need to separately let you also just co-host without being made to sing for your supper separately like this, but this is great. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, I feel like, so, so next week we're having the, the student who won the, the TLF auction, Jake Bishop. And I feel like hey, Jake. Um, if Jake listens to this episode, he'd be like, wait a second, what am I supposed to talk about? Don't worry, Jake. I've got, I've got plans for you, my friend. Yes. Uh-oh. Jake, come work with me at USAID. That's what you should do. Now you're talking, that would actually be really cool if that were to happen. Well, gents, uh, there was a reference to the 70s and the 80s, and I'm feeling a, a segue coming on. Shall we, 
Shall we tell our listeners that if they don't have an interest in sports ball, now's the time to now's the time. But with thanks to Greg, um, who will yeah. thank again at the end. Um, so, so here's what I want. I, I, we should also talk about the Super Bowl. Let's save the Super Bowl for last. Here's okay. my question: Do you guys remember the music video "Let's Go Mets Go"? <laughs> I, I confess, Ooh. I don't. Is this in the spirit of Super Bowl Shuffle? This and, was in the spirit of Super Bowl Shuffle. This was the, this was the yeah. video they made um, during the during the 1986 season. Um, let's go, Mets go! And indeed, the the making of the video itself shows up in the 1986 A Year to Remember video. Sort of look back at the at the Mets season. I'm looking I at think it. I saw it on VHS. You know, this I was a, a sophomore or junior in college at this time, so. I think it might have played on a loop in in the uh, in the common area in the dorm the year following. <laughs> um, ooh, let's go! So let's go. If you type in "Let's Go Mets Go" to Google, the very first hit is the YouTube video of the of the song. Oh so, my just, uh, you know, enjoy that one. Uh, as opposed it. to "Let's Go," as opposed to the actual Mets theme song, which is of course "Meet the Mets." Meet the um, Mets. But yeah, that's cool. a separate issue. Um, <laughs> so, so I was. I, I mean, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna out myself here a little bit, right? I was six for most of the 1986 season right i turned i turned seven um between when the mets clinched the division and the playoffs and so many of my memories of the season are actually memories of watching videos of the games after you know years later my only organic memories the only things i remember in real time um is i remember opening day because i was there um i remember i opened we used to go to opening day every year um and my dad my dad had this thing that he would do where he would write a note that said, um, please excuse Stephen from school today. He has to go see the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, Doc Gooden prob- was yes, Doc Gooden yes. the opening day starter. Dr. Strawberry. Uh, let me see. 96 Mets schedule. I'm pulling up the Mets results to see who actually pitched opening day. Stand well, by. So while you're doing that, I'll narrate. Yeah. Now, Greg, I'm guessing you and I are fairly contemporaneous Gen Xers. Uh, I was born in 71. So I was, you know, I was just, just getting before getting my driver's license when this is all going down. And uh, I was watching this because in San Antonio, the cable company, you had a few of these, you know, super stations. You had WTBS coming out of Atlanta and the Braves were no fun to watch. You had WGN Chicago. The Cubs were no fun to watch. Then you had WOR. And there was fun going on with the Mets. And Davey Johnson, the manager, Went to high school in San Antonio, Alamo Heights. And so I felt like that was all the hook I needed to feel like I was, that was my guy, a guy that had sat in those seats where I was sitting. And now he's coaching this exciting cast of characters. Now, Steve, who was the opening day starter? So Doc Gooden was, in fact, the opening day starter. For the home opener, which was actually the Mets' fifth game of the season. And it was the hated St. Louis Cardinals. Oh. And... The Cardinals won that game by scoring four runs in the top of the 369 12, uh, 13th inning. Um, so the Cardinals won six to two and 13. We did not stay for all 13 innings, dropping the Mets to two and three. Um, the only time all season, uh, or yes, the only time all season their record would be under 500. They would then win the next um, 11 games um, and uh, what, 18 of the next 19. Um, and they were off to the races. So I remember that. All of the season. If yes, they I remember that. that in, yeah. Who was pitching and gave, does it show there who gave up those those runs? That feels like a, uh, that's no Roger McDowell, Jesse Orozco deal. That's like way back in the bullpen. 
uh, Randy Neiman yep, and Brad Bereni. Bereni? Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, Bruce. I'm sorry. Bruce, Bruce Bereni. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, here, so Gooden went eight, um, struck out six, um, two runs, both earned. McDowell pitched the ninth and tenth. Orozco pitched the eleventh and twelfth, and then they blew it in the thirteenth. That's like that's typical. That's like that was the Mets in '86. You could not beat you know the starters, and you could not beat McDowell and Orozco. So the the Cardinals, as you say, were the, like the the complete nemesis, if I if you will, because well, uh, they had just they had just edged out the Mets for the division the year. Now. I mean, the yeah, Mets had won exactly. 90, the Mets won ninety eight games in nineteen eighty five and didn't win a division because of the Cardinals. The Cardinals had such a good lineup then. Um, I'm guessing probably John Tudor was pitching against Doc Gooden in that deal. He was so good. Who pitched uh, that? Okay, see, this is I keep going away from the box score, and I just should leave it up on my screen. Uh, the starter was no. The starter for the Cardinals was Ricky Horton. Okay, yeah, not as exciting, but but you know, I mean, actually, in fairness, I'm I'm looking at their stats for the year now. Horton, I, I forgot his ERA for the year was two two four. I mean, yeah, yeah he he was no slouch. Um, so, so just but, but so, so I always struck me as somehow the more intimidating sort of ace of the staff. Maybe I'm remembering so, that wrong. So I remember opening day. I remember the game they clinched against the Cubs um, in September. Um, but like my most powerful memory is actually Game Six of the NLCS because my dad was on a business trip, and so my mom had taken us all out to dinner. Um, and we wa- we were walking back from dinner, like desperate to find out what happened in the game. And we walked past the Caliente Cab Company on Seventh Avenue South. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, still there, and, right? It's still there. Probably, and, yeah. and the game was on. I was like, wait, how is the game still on? Yeah. <laughs> because they were in, by then, the 14th inning, right, of game six in NLCS, right? Mike Scott, who had already, you know, the Astros had only won the Mike Scott games, and Mike Scott was set to pitch yeah. game seven. Yeah, he was so good. At, that yeah. was the well, he early, was cheating. It was the yeah. early. <laughs> like he was the only one. Uh, the uh, the early split finger fastball. What a what a novelty! You say split fingered fastball. I say scuff. Scuff. Yeah, it it worked. Um, That's uh, true. Yeah, I like a tourist. <laughs> um, and then and then of course so so I remember I remember like watching like three like the 14th and 15th innings of game six literally standing outside of the Caliente Cab Company just looking through the window and then my mom was like guys we have to go home I was like. <laughs> I became a Mets fan in, in large measure because my college roommate was a diehard Mets fan, Mets fan. And I think I remember bringing him oxygen in its malted beverage form uh, that <laughs> evening because um, I, I, I was not a, uh, a diehard fan, but he was glued to the TV in the common room watching these innings tick by screaming at the at the um, at the TV. And all we could do is bring him sustenance and and hang on. Well, and, and I think what folks forget about Game Six um, of the NLCS, because everyone remembers the World Series, is that the Mets were down three nothing going to the top of the ninth mm-hmm. um, in Game Six of the NLCS, and that it was actually this like stunning rally off of Bob Nepper um, that only that got the game to extra innings in the first place. So the Mets have this miraculous rally because everyone assumed that if they got to Game Seven, they were dead because Mike Scott had like totally befuddled them. And so the Mets score three in the top of the ninth to force extra innings. Then when we get to the 14th, the Mets score one in the top of the 14th. And then Billy Hatcher, right, hits a solo homer off of the left field foul pole at the Astrodome in the bottom of the 14th. And so we keep going. And then the Mets score 
three in the 16th, and you're like, okay, fine. But then the Astros get two back and have two runners on with Jesse Orozco finally gets, I think it was Kevin Bass, to strike mm-hmm. out to end, the, to end the series. I mean, it's just, even before the World Series, like, it was just like this crazy thing. Yeah, that was, those, those were the days. Okay, can we, can we talk about this great divide with Mets fandom? Were you on Team Dykstra uh, Backman or Team Mookie and Tuffle? Mookie. You were down with Mookie and Tuffle, the right-handed batters? Well, wait, I mean, so so just to be clear, right? I mean, Mookie, once once we didn't really have a left fielder, right? It wasn't Mookie or Dykstra, right? And the Mookie-Dykstra thing was mostly wet, uh, until we decided that George Foster was past his prime. George right? wasn't the most mobile left fielder. No. He no. rocked the sunglasses like. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I got to pull up. I mean, I got to pull up the, the box score. But if, if memory serves, I think Mookie and Dykstra – both played most of the games in the World Series, right? Uh, by the time you get down yeah. to then, yes. During the bulk of the season, there was at least a long run where on any given night, I just remember this as a, as a 15-year-old watching and wondering, would the would the starting lineup be the left, left-handed left batters where you got the always sizzling, you never knew what he was going to do, Lenny Dykstra, and Walt Backman, who, I mean, I think he actually led the team in average. Yeah, he was 320 for the year, so his Batting average for the for the main players was, I mean, it was unbelievable. And then, but he couldn't, but he couldn't hit lefties. Well, like Wally, Wally's thing was he couldn't hit. Right, lefties. You you had to take him out at a certain point, um, which is part of the genius of my man David Johnson. He he handled that lineup well. Let me let me point out this fun fact from from uh, the Baseball Reference Guide. Uh, <laughs> Wally Backman was no base stealer. I mean, yeah, he stole thirteen, but he got caught seven times. His uh, his ratios were not so great. Um, but Mookie, of course, was awesome. And Tuffle, I think, was just underappreciated. I mean, he was—he actually got on base at, at a decent clip, but com- compared to compared to the other guys, you know, not so. But, I, I think we are doing a bit of a disservice to the '86 Mets by spending all this time talking about the position players because I, the real secret to that team was the pitching. I mean, you know, fantastic starting five. That was a yes. deep, deep, deep starting five. I mean the the worst the, the the weak link in the starting rotation was Rick Aguilera, right? Who had an ERA of three point eight eight. I mean that's you know every every single every single uh, starting pitcher had at least two complete games. Um, four of them threw at least one complete game shutout. Yeah, right. Um, for a and large you lefty or righty for closers because Orozco was as, as much a closer as McDowell was. No, I mean, listen, if you guys, if you combine Orozco and McDowell, right, they were 22 and 15 with 43 saves. <laughs> like, I mean, wow. that's just insane, yeah, that's right? Nuts. That's nuts. <laughs> I mean, so they had, you know, between them, they had, what, uh, 37 decisions and 43 saves. So there were 80 games in yeah, which yeah. they were a pitcher of record in some, in some respect. They ate wow. two, 200 innings between them. Yeah. Uh, that's really something. <laughs> Uh, and then there was that there was that crazy game in Cincinnati where they were both where where David Johnson put them both in the game at the same time and had that they were putting in? Yeah, he put him in one of them in the outfield and we just yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again yeah. again genius of David Johnson. I, I that was like the nineteen inning game. Was that yeah. that one? My no, name. no, it was no, no, no. That was the game where there was the fight at third base between Ray Knight and um, oh gosh, who was the who was it? Pete Rose? No, it wasn't Rose. No, who was it? There was a big fight at third base and then like that and so like. Like eight people got thrown out of the game, so you know he was like down to not that many position players by then. Um, but I have to say, I, I still think the unsung hero of that pitching rotation, and really the unsung hero of the World Series, um, was Sid Fernandez. 
Um, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, El Cid was, he was just, I mean, yeah, he was fat and he was, you know, was he walked a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, he actually had, he was 16 and six. Um, he had the lowest, uh, well, not the lowest whip, but he had the, he had the lowest fielding independent pitching if we're looking at advanced metrics. And also, I mean, his relief appearance in game seven of the World Series turned that game around. I mean, the, you know, the Red Sox were up early, right? Darling had nothing. Um, and Sid came in and shut the door. I, I will endorse that. And I'll add that there's, and I don't know how to quantify this. I wouldn't try it. It's the watchability factor. Yes. Yeah. Sid was fun to watch in a yeah. way that wasn't true for Ron Darling or Baba Heda as much. Obviously, Doc Gooden was really fun to watch. Um, but Sid was my second favorite one to discover was up that night. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've never seen a rising fastball before, at least in baseball. Oh. Actually, in <laughs> softball, you see it all the time. But <laughs> Now, um, another thing that's really fun to observe is just just how crazy deep the lineup went. We've already touched on the fact that they could that they could rotate the top two spots to go lefty, to go righty, to start the game in a way that is really rare for its full reliability. But, I mean, you're talking about how Kevin Mitchell and Howard Johnson – are not starting typically. Those are like people you bring in a little more irregularly and bring it off the bench. You got, you know, old vets like Lee Mazzilli. Uh, it stands turn. Beadster. Yeah. Uh, oh, the all the way down, but it's pretty darn impressive, yeah. especially the Kevin Mitchell business. If I recall correctly, they've started bringing him in only in the second half of the year as, as he began to show what he could do. And I remember also, watching, yeah. him, watching him and just being like, this dude is like made of muscle. He's gigantic. So they also the other the other thing that was happening was they th- this was the Raphael Santana problem, which is that you know everyone loved Raphael Santana, but he just couldn't hit. Like in that lineup, he just didn't make yeah, any no, sense. Yeah, really stood out. And so and so they start using Mitchell more and more at shortstop, um, which is hilarious when you think about where Kevin Mitchell spent the rest of his career once he miraculously right. got a lot bigger. Um, How did but that? Also, oh, man, he worked out hard. Um, but also this was the dawn of the, this was the dawn of the Kevin Elster era too, right? I mean, Elster was a 21 year old rookie on that team. Um, and that's so funny. It's just such a weird, that I have, I have such memories of that team. Yeah, no, that was was a special time. All right, friends. Here's here's my question. So who was the, who was the MVP of that team? Um, you can make a case for Keith Hernandez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, no one person is responsible for the all for all of its team sport, and this was a more balanced, spread out team. Yeah, there yeah, was, but I asked you the question, man. Come on, know, so, and, and I'm and I'm responding to it in barstool fashion by Henry <laughs> Wine. Uh, there are certain ways in which Gary Carter, the who who really stood out in a weird kind of way, is somehow just so. I mean, he just felt like this glom on on top of it, brought in from Montreal. But at certain key moments, I always felt like watching that year that that he kind of provided something special that, that they needed. Uh, obviously straw with strawberries, strawberries, amazing. Um, but I, I think if I had to go with one of the hitters, I'd have to go with Keith and the mustache and uh, for pitching, I'd, I'd go with doc. But so that makes me think it's Keith. Greg, what do you think? I think I'm going to, I'm going to second that logic. I I'm, I'm just, I'm having flashbacks of the mustache at the moment. Um, <laughs> And and watching Strawberry walk to and fro the la- the mound, but uh, yeah, I, I I I think I agree with Bobby. You know, it's it's really it's a, it's a really tough call. I mean, I, I think Keith 
Keith is the glue, right? I mean, like Keith was the like Keith put his personality on that team um, in a way that like no one else did. Um, but you know, I mean, I don't know a team that wins 108 games. The MVP is a guy who had 13 homers and 83 RBI. It's 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 a weird, you know. But the flip side is Gary Carter hit 255. I mean, it's it's such a you know no no one on that team had an exceptionally good individual statistical season. Yeah. Well, so I'll make this argument for OBP plus slugging. I won't do the uh, addition. Ooh, yes. I'll give you the pieces. Uh, Keith Hernandez with 652 plate appearances. So basically playing it all. Unlike all the rest of them had their moments where they weren't in. Gary Carter because he had to be rested. The others because they were being rotated. Um, uh, so Keith was uh, – his OBP was 413, which is a yeah. – Great OBP, and his OPS was 859 on top of that. So you guys do that, which didn't, which didn't even lead the, which didn't even lead the team. No, but it, but the combination no. to do that, to do that <laughs> night in and night out for the entire year. Well, uh, plus his defense. I mean, I mean, he is the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen with my own eyes. Um, which is not for nothing. No, that's. Um, that, I think that clinches it right there. I wouldn't even. Well, and your your point about personality. You know, there there's an emotional component to baseball that can't be quantified in the stats and and Hernandez exemplified that and, and, and just what I mean what, the reason why I love looking at these stats is because like you would not think a team with these stats would win 108 games and yet yeah, yeah. The, the 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 uh the sum was greater than the, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts absolutely yeah it was magic it was magic and the real and the real and the real shame is that they never got back yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. the real, you know, 87 was a crushing, sad day. I mean, 87, 87, they were all hurt, right? I mean, yeah. 88 was really, 88 should have been the year, but, but, you know, they got, they met a steamroller in the name of Oral Hershiser in the NLCS. Yeah. I hadn't thought about Oral Hershiser in a while. What a great Neither. Wow. Um, yes, I mean, Hershiser, Hershiser single-handedly beat the Mets in the 88 NLCS. It's really quite stunning. Um, when you go back and look at the, how those games played out. I love the way that that format, as you were saying earlier about Mike Scott and then about Oral, the way that a truly dominant pitcher who's on their stride, if if it's well-managed, seven-game series, they can deliver it, basically. I mean, Madison Bumgarner and the Giants a few years ago, right? I mean, that Mm -hmm. was, you know, that was exactly what that was. So, um, all right. Well, anyway, I could talk about the 86 Mets all night, but I suspect that no one wants to hear any more of it. So, really quickly, (laughs) Bobby, Bobby, you and I, our Super Bowl predictions were on lock. Uh, <laughs> man, I did not see that coming. No. Now, I didn't realize that they'd had the tackle issue, the offensive line coming unwound, but for it to come unwound that bad, that's not just an injury issue. That was fantastic no. defensive scheming by yes. Tampa Bay. Um, really, really impressive performance and a great illustration of how peaking at the right time is, is everything in these sorts of deals but but also but but have you people never heard of keeping a running back in to you know to to help pick up the rush i mean hello i don't know know if the chiefs uh running backs do that Uh, i don't know if that's in in the contract but so i I, so listen i was horribly wrong about the super bowl what else is new i want to say just one last thing which is um yes the chiefs lost 31 to 9 but if ever it was possible to come out of a game where you lose by 22 points with infinitely more appreciation for the losing quarterback I mean, yeah. some of the stuff Mahomes did physically oh. in that game. I, I like there. There was a. I, I don't remember the exact. There, someone said the statistic that like um, 
on on his dropbacks all night, Mahomes actually ran about 460 yards, <laughs> and Brady ran 34. There's um, a win where he ends up on the left sideline, and he's going yes. down, and he, he's and parallel he just to the ground, and nearly pulls it off. No, Bobby, he's parallel to the ground when he releases the ball, and the ball hits the receiver in the in the face mask. Yeah. Like 30 yards downfield. Just, I, you know, yes, the Chiefs lost and they should be embarrassed. And they 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 got out coached and out everything. But holy cow, did Patrick Mahomes put on the most impressive, losing, poor statistical performance of a quarterback I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't, was, wasn't he doing all of that on like a broken toe or something? Probably details, so. Yeah. You know, minor, just, minor details. It does give you just, an appreciation for just how different these people are. Yes. Now, Tom I mean, Brady, hats off, 43 years old. It's ridiculous what he is yeah. doing at 43. Oh, my goodness. And Gronkowski. Um, I don't love those guys, but I really smiled and enjoyed uh, seeing the, the ridiculousness of them still doing this on such a stage. But but who I was really impressed by? Uh, Fournette, Leonard Fournette. Wow. That guy's a serious runner. Um, that's a good team. And that defense isn't going anywhere. All right. Well, on that note, Greg, thank you so much. Hey, it was great. Wait, what is Bobby playing? I don't know. It's the Mets song. Oh, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> there we go. I That's some great 80s guitar. I may have do to look it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Let's go. <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining the lawfare guys being like, click. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that. Listen, I mean, no one is still listening to the podcast at this point. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, Greg, listen, it was it was super awesome to have you on. We are so grateful to you for, you know, participating in the raffle, for winning the raffle, um, really for all of your work. I mean, that's such important and and really like I'm really thrilled that we got to, to talk about it and, and get our listeners a chance to listen to it. And, you know, kudos to you, man. That's that's just that's really awesome. Hey, Steve, what do you think? What do you say we have Greg back on uh, one year anniversary? Greg, just reach out when the time comes. If you have any, if you could possibly stomach it, we want you back. <laughs> we <laughs> want you safe because we want you back. That's what I say at the end of Mets games, right? When you go home. Oh, yeah. Um, Which, by the way, um, uh, we have an anniversary coming up, Steve, the bicentennial oh, yeah. episode. Oh, yes. Epi- episode 200 is around the corner. So. So for the four of you who are still listening, um, if you have thoughts about some special way we could mark episode 200, given that we're still not seeing anybody in person, should we uh, do, let us know. We could, do, uh, we could activate a Zoom webinar while running Zencaster so everybody could could watch if, you know, if they're really... Like a live show? Yeah, do it live and record it live yeah. and that way we can take questions. We can't get together like we did for the 100th episode when Jen hosted us at American University. A live a live AMA for episode 200. That's that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's an idea. Um do we have do do we have the technology? We'll figure it out. I think if we do what we're doing right now, which is just open well, a Zoom meeting but just keep the Bobby's sound. We've got teenagers. You'll it, it, it can happen. Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll make a TikTok. We'll make an NSL podcast TikTok. for the 200th. The debut of the National Security Law podcast TikTok. That is what we need. You know? God help us. All right, well, Greg Greg, thank you. Um, this is a treat. Um, everybody else, thank you for listening. You know where to find me. You know where to find Bobby. You know where to find us. Um, let's go Mets. Stay yes. safe out there. Adios. Thank you.